I said earlier on in the, in the service this morning that, that Advent, which we're celebrating here in our church and along with Christians all over the world, is a time to reflect on our, what you might call our in-betweenness. Christians believe that everything in history, without exception, everything in the grand sweep of all of human history, hinges on the coming of Jesus. That everything before Jesus came to earth was building to his coming. And everything after Jesus has come to earth is building to his return. That his life, his death, his resurrection is the hinge. And when we celebrate Advent, we celebrate, commemorate, reflect on the fact that we live in between those two comings. It's a time to look back on the fact that Jesus has already come and to celebrate that he's come, to think, put ourselves in Israel's position, waiting on his first coming, and try to imagine, why was it such good news that this king had finally come, this Messiah was here? And then we also look ahead to the promise that he's going to come again, and we try to stir up our own hearts, concentrate our own minds on why we need what hasn't been delivered to us yet, on why... This world isn't enough so that we're protected from our temptation to settle for a a half-life that we might live here apart from Jesus or that we're, we're protected from being so beat down by the brokenness we're forced to live with that we that we can't see hope. Advent is a chance to remind ourselves that the world is not yet what it should be and it is not yet what it will be. So in Advent, we're honest. We're honest about what it is that we need so that we can be hungry. We're honest about what the world is right now, as it is, so that we can be hungry for the world that Jesus has promised to build. That's where our study of Judges comes in. Judges is an excellent chance to look at why Jesus is so necessary. Because... Partly because, you know, I mentioned earlier, we celebrate and look back on and reflect on Israel's history at this time of year. It's, Judges is important because it gives us some really uh, good insight into Israel's history that made them long, long for a Messiah. But it, it's also helpful for us as we look ahead to the world that we want. We've said from the beginning that, that Judges, the reason it's still here, the reason this story, all these difficult, ugly stories have been saved by believers for thousands of years so that we still have access to them, the reason God has protected these stories and made sure we have them is that it offers us critical relationship history. That what we, we need to know, if we want to have a relationship with God, we need to know what his relationships have been like. We need to know what we can expect from him. We need to know what he will expect from us. And looking at his relationship to Israel in the past is how we know what we need, what we can expect, and what will be expected. We've been looking at this book as a kind of relationship history. And toward the end of the book, we've recognized that Judges, has, Judges, Judges shows us that if we want to have a healthy and peaceful and life-giving relationship with God, if that's what this relationship history is pointing to, this is what we want, a healthy and peaceful and life-giving relationship with God. And what we need is a very specific kind of leader to get us there. If this judges as relationship history, is trying to tell us what we can expect from God, what he'll expect from us. If we want to have a relationship with him, 
What Judges has shown us is that if we want to have a relationship with him, one that's healthy and peaceful and life-giving, then what we need in order to get there is a very specific kind of leader. The chaos that Israel lived with during the time of the judges had everything to do with the fact that there was no king in Israel and everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. If we want peace, peace on earth and peace with God, we need a very particular sort of king. One of the images uh, that I've used to talk about Judges and why it's here and how it helps us is that Judges offers us a sort of negative space portrait. You guys know what a negative space portrait is? It's, 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 it's a, a picture in which what you're supposed to notice is what isn't there. In which all the splashes of color that catch your eye initially are actually just outlining something that isn't there. Outlining blankness, canvas, Emptiness. Think of the, uh, the NBC logo. This is a famous negative space picture. You guys may not even know about the NBC logo. Nobody watches news anymore. Nobody watches actual TV. It's all on Netflix now. But if you, if you, if you did know about the NBC logo, what you know is it's this iconic peacock, right? And you've got all of these colors going out, fanning out, kind of curved at one end and come to a point at the other end. And there's bright orange and bright yellow and there's bright green and... and blue and red, and your eye is first drawn to the colors, this nice fan of color. But when you look at it in a different way, what you see is that there's spaces in between showing you these are depicting feathers. And then there's this little notch in one of them that shows, oh, that's the the face, that's the beak. What you're supposed to notice is that there's a peacock that's not there and there by not being there, if that makes sense. Each judge that we've looked at in Judges is like one of the feathers on that peacock. It's colorful. It's eye-catching. It's interesting in its own right. That's for sure, but it isn't the point. The judges themselves have never been the point. They are there to help build a profile of what Israel really needs. They are there to outline what's missing. I don't know if I mean to communicate that Jesus is the peacock in this analogy, but Jesus is sort of the peacock in this analogy. He's the king that's not there. And what I want to do this morning is is take the first of two steps in our Advent celebration here as as a church. This morning to, to recap judges to see what kind of king we really need. What's missing in the portrait that we've, we've had painted here in Judges. And then next week, look at the king that God has given us. This week, the king we all need. Next week, the king that God has actually given us. I want to take four, I want to notice four things, pull four things out of Judges about the sort of king we need. And then next week, we'll take the same four things and we'll celebrate the king that God has given us. I'm going to begin at the end of the book. Judges was building to a culmination that helped us to see as clearly as we could what the whole book was about. I want to begin at the end and then trace our way back to the beginning to pull out these four things that Judges shows us about the king that we need. I'm going to begin by reading the last verse in the entire book. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from Judges chapter 21, verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is God's word. You can be seated. Here's the first thing Judges shows us about the kind of king that we need. Judges shows us we need a king that won't let us do whatever we want. We need a king who won't let us do whatever we want. The ending of Judges was unforgettable. It included perhaps the most horrific act of violence recorded anywhere in the Bible. I don't know of anything worse than what comes through in the last section of Judges. Judges' last section begins in chapter 17 with the exact same words I just read to you from the end of chapter 21. And in between, in between are a series of horrifying examples of what happens when there was no king in Israel and when everyone is just doing what was right in their own eyes. Judges 19 includes the the most horrifying act that I mentioned earlier, where a band of Israelite men from Benjamin demand to sleep with another Israelite man visiting their town, a man who then sends his own wife out to them to save his own skin, shoving her to the crowd to do with whatever they wanted to do. It's an awful story, surrounded by other awful acts of mob violence and and devolving into a civil war where just chaos reigns among God's own people. And that whole series of examples is framed with the same basic statement. There's no king in Israel. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. It's, 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 think of it like the culminating point of the whole book and a set of powerful illustrations to make sure you get the point. What you need is a king. Let me show you that by giving you a sense of what happens when you don't have one. And friends, I think we need this illustration in all of its ugliness. We need what we looked at when we looked at Judges 19 because we, especially at our time and in our place, we are wired to think that authority is the problem. That what's holding societies back tends to be big systems or or dictators or or expectations that people put on others that, that, that hold us back from being what we could be if we were just set loose. Free to develop. Free to be who we are. That the key to getting better is being free from whatever might get in the way. And there's lots of ways we could make that point. There's sociologists with categories like expressive individualism. There's the moral relativism of the 1960s. But I want to make the point by giving you Elsa. You guys know Elsa, right? Frozen? Have you seen that? You guys heard of Frozen? Everybody's heard of Frozen. It's like the Titanic of our generation. So at the heart of Frozen is this song that went viral on its own, like completely separate from the movie itself, this song called Let It Go. Now, insert that song line in your head and just imagine it so I don't have to sing it for you. Have you noticed that, or maybe there's a line in here that you haven't noticed. So I think of that song as kind of an anthem for our time, really. It took on its own life, even, even separate from what its role was in the movie, because it captures what we think about individual freedom. That you've got to stop holding yourself back. You've got to stop letting expectations and responsibilities keep you from expressing who you are. This is what Elsa learns. This is what Elsa embraces, right? And here's a line from that song. It's time to see what I can do. To test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. 
That's Elsa's moment. And think of how natural that sounds and even laudable to our ears. It's a challenge to the authorities that would hold our kids back and make them into something less than what they are. We celebrate that. It sounds great. In the mouth of Elsa. And the motive is good. But imagine those same words in the mouth of the Benjaminites from Gilead as they stood outside the door of that Israelite man and demanded that he send someone out so that they could do to them what they wanted. Imagine those Benjaminites saying, No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Send him out. Why is it okay for Elsa to say that, but not okay for these abusers to say that? Maybe you think it's okay for Elsa to say it, and not the abusers, because Elsa isn't looking to hurt anyone. The abusers were. But I wonder, whose rule is that? Whose rule is it that it's okay to have no rules until you hurt someone else? Who do you look to to say no? What we learned, I think, what we, what we, what we tried to communicate in that, that last sermon about judges is that you can't have justice and autonomy at the same time. You can't have justice where the powers that be are held to account for what they do to those too weak to resist them. You can't have justice and autonomy where everybody gets to do what's best in their own eyes. That giving up our autonomy and embracing an authority that's bigger than us, that gets to say no to us, is the price we have to pay if we want to live in a world that has real and true and lasting justice. And the cost that we have to pay for a God who has authority or power that can hold the unjust accountable, which is what we all want. We want people to be held to account for their injustice. The cost we have to pay for a God who can hold them accountable is accepting a God who can hold us accountable too. What Judges shows us we need is is a king who can establish justice because he has the right to say what's right and what's wrong. And he has the power to hold people to his standard. He has the right to tell me no. So I wonder, friends, who has that authority in your life? Do you live? Are you willing to live? as one who is under authority? To see that what you want, the kind of world that you want, can't happen unless there is someone who can tell you and everyone else no. We need a king who won't let us do whatever we want. That's what Judges has shown us. That was the culminating point of the whole book. There's more. Backing it up a little further into the book. A second thing Judges has shown us that we need that helps us to celebrate Jesus and his coming and why we want him to come again. We need a king who won't share our flaws. We need a king who won't share our flaws. The guys who were scattered throughout the book of Judges, these rulers, 
that God raises up at the right time to deliver Israel from the people who were oppressing them. They were heroes in one sense. They were powerful deliverers. They used their power to, to get rid of the, those who were causing Israel pain. But in another sense, they were not heroes. They were deeply flawed. And that was as much a point, the point about these judges as the good things they did for Israel. They are not moral heroes. They were used despite themselves rather than because of themselves, because of their moral standing. We really started to see this once we hit Gideon. I mean, the earlier judges, we didn't get a ton of detail about them, and they seemed like they could have been good, upstanding guys as far as we know. But you get to Gideon, and in Gideon you see a guy who was desperate for control. A guy who couldn't trust God. A guy who, once he did finally get to the place where he could trust God for a while, trusted him, saw God deliver him, and then stopped trusting him immediately and went back to trying to control his own life. Then we saw Jephthah. He was this impulsive guy, so impulsive that he, he was the same impulsiveness that, that made him ready to, to go out in battle for God's people led him to make a vow that, he, that ended up with the death of his own daughter. And then, of course, we saw Samson, more than any other judge, reflected Israel. Samson was a man who just did whatever he wanted, who used as much power as he could muster to do whatever he thought was best to do. Samson was a man that no one said no to, a man who didn't look to God as any sort of ruler or authority in his life. He reflected Israel perfectly. So these guys are colorful characters, and that's for sure, but their color is aimed at showing something else. Their color is trying to draw our attention to what's not there. They couldn't redeem Israel fully because they were too much like Israel. Israel's worst enemy, from the beginning to the end of this book, Israel's worst enemy was not the Philistines or the Moabites or the Midianites or anybody else who had conquered them for whatever time. Israel's worst enemy was themselves, their own hearts, their own lives. And their judges were no different than they were. That's why they could only offer temporary relief, nothing deep and true and lasting. They shared the same bondage, the same problem, the same guilt. These kings or these rulers shared Israel's flaws. And so each one of them left Israel exactly where they found Israel. In desperate need of lasting redemption. These judges show us that what we need is a leader after God's own heart. One that won't be held back by the fickle and self-serving ways that we follow. One who can bring us out of our sin that won't be stuck just as deeply in it as we are. That's what these judges have shown us that we need. A king who won't share our flaws. That leads directly to a third thing these judges have shown us. We need a king who won't leave us unchanged. We need a king that won't lead us unchanged. What begins this whole mess of a story is a leadership vacuum. A leadership vacuum that just kept opening up over and over and over. So early on, at the very beginning of the book, we saw that, that Israel was doing fine when they had Moses. I mean, they weren't perfect, but they had Moses. And Moses kept calling them back to faithfulness, reminding them of God's goodness to them, reminding them of what God expected of them, leading them, modeling for them faith in what God had asked. Joshua steps up right after Moses, and they've got Joshua. While they have Joshua, everybody's great. They obey him. They go, even, even 
into battle against bigger armies that they shouldn't have expected to beat because through Joshua's leadership, they expected the best. They believed God would be for them. Joshua helped them be faithful. But then Joshua dies, and the question that the book opens with is, who's going to go up and lead us now? Who will lead us now? And by the end of the book, that's still the question, friends. They don't have the leader that they need. No one fills that void. Now, the judges do for a while, One of the things we talked about in Judges, one of the great things I hope you'll carry with you from this series and remember when you think back about Judges is the cycle of Judges that repeats through all of these stories. A cycle that begins with Israel forgetting the Lord and his goodness and then leads to them disobeying the Lord and actually even worse, just turning to other gods to to, to provide for them what they don't think that the God of Israel can provide for them and that leads them to oppression and their oppression, they call out to God and the same God who punishes them over and over again keeps giving them new rulers, new leaders that, that liberate them from whoever it is that was ruling over them. And that happens on repeat over and over throughout the book. But something to notice about that repeat is that every time the judge dies, Israel is right back where they were to begin with. This point comes out in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a kind of summary of what's about to come, an introduction, if you will, of the rest of the book And in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, listen to what the author says. He's telling you, here's what you want to notice about all these stories I'm about to tell you. Here's what he says. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Great, right? To that extent, it's a happy story. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Each judge was an an act of mercy from God. But look at verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. What Judges shows us is that Israel's turning back, if you will, to God never penetrated the surface. Their natures did not change. As one writer put it, they were like a class of second graders with the teacher in the room. When the teacher's in the room, more often than not, they're calm and compliant. But everything breaks loose when the teacher steps out. What Judges has shown us is that external constraints of of a leader who will hold you in check, those are okay. They aren't nothing. They do help. But they aren't enough. What we need is, is more than just somebody looking over our shoulder. We need someone who can penetrate the surface and change what we want. Israel's relationship to God wasn't one of love or true affection. It was just a transaction. They treated him like they treated the other gods. It was a false intimacy, like that of a prostitute for the one who hires her. Their love was for hire, to get what they wanted from God. That was the image that came through over and over in Judges. Not for God's own sake, but only for their own. And that was never enough. And what it points to, what this book points to, just to bring it back here to this this third thing we learn about what we need in a king, that we are enslaved to sin. Sin is not something we trip up and fall into sometimes. It is not a mistake that we make. It is a power that enslaves us. 
that's rooted in hearts that want other things besides what God wants. And as long as our hearts want other things besides what God wants, then we can have all the external constraints in the world and they're not going to do anything for us. That once they're gone, the real us will come out. And I don't want to live like that. I'm tired of a bent towards sin, aren't you? Israel's story showed us that we're just going to be stuck that way. Unless we have a leader who can actually change something under the surface. Not just put new shackles on us. We need a transformation of our desires, of what our hearts want. One, we, we certainly need someone who can deliver us from sin's penalty. We need one who doesn't share our flaws, who can, who can lead us out of the guilt of our sin. Yes, we need that, absolutely. But we also need one who can deliver us from sin's power, which is very much like an addictive force in our lives. Where we, the more we choose sin, the more we can't not choose sin. We need a transformation so that we can, we can do good out of love and not out of fear or pride. And Judges is here partly to show us that nothing else will do. Judges is a case study that, that sets up what the, pro, the, the prophets will then promise to Israel. That one day, God is going to make a new covenant. And this one's not going to be like the old one. It isn't going to be like the old one that has laws that constrain you. It's going to be rooted in hearts that are new. Hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. Hearts that have God's law written on them so that doing God's law is doing what you want, not what you're obligated to do. That's what the prophets promised. Judges shows us why we need what they've promised. Judges shows us what sort of king is the only king that can lead us to peace and health in our relationship with God. We need a king who will also give us new life through his spirit. A king who won't die and leave us in the same place that he found us. But a king who would die and rise again to intercede for us forever. And to leave with us his own presence as our guide. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. That's what Judges has shown us we need. Now here's the last thing. We need a king that won't let us forget God's goodness. Judges has shown us that we need a king that won't let us forget God's goodness. The reason I'm, where, where, where I'm coming from with this, at the very beginning of Judges, the fundamental thing, the fundamental failure that leads to all the other problems is a failure to remember. Their issue was memory loss. It's the starting point of every cycle. And it's the place that we're tempted to follow Israel every day. These were people who had just been delivered by God's hand from the most powerful empire that that world had ever known. They had nothing. And he set them free. They had seen him send plagues from the sky, out of nowhere. They'd seen him part the Red Sea, bring it back crashing down again to destroy the most powerful army in that part of the world. They'd seen him deliver them food 
bread just falling from the sky. Water springing out of a rock in the middle of a dry wilderness. They had evidence that when God said he would provide for them, he meant it and he could do it. But still, chapter 2, verse 12 says, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Where did that start? Verse 10 of chapter 2 says that all the generation of those who had seen firsthand what God had done, that generation was gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And there it is, the starting point for the spiral that the rest of the book took us into. The whole book culminates in the problem of a kingless people who had no leadership, but the book starts with what happens when a people forget. So we need a king, but we need a king who will help us remember. We need a king who won't let us forget what God has done. It isn't likely that these people forgot the facts of their history. Their whole world was built around a year that brought these things back up through their feasts, through their practices uh, uh, at the temple. It's not likely that they didn't literally know about the work that God had done. More likely that this generation came up and didn't know his work from experience. They didn't feel and think and behave as if God really had done these things. The other generations had, had seen it. They had experienced it. This generation hadn't. They didn't taste it. They knew of that work like we know about George Washington, a fact that we've learned, not a person that's real to us whom we've experienced. And what this book has shown us is that all of us are vulnerable when we don't experience God as one who's been good to us. We are vulnerable when when the good news of what God's done for us in the past isn't living and active news in our lives now. What happens in that case, what happens when what we've traded is experiential knowledge that, that, we, that we do get at a deep level of our hearts for a, a, a knowledge like Israel had of mere facts reported to us by somebody else. When that's what we've traded we, like Israel, will begin to judge the past in light of the present. Israel took these facts that had been told to them that they had not experienced, that they didn't believe on the level of their hearts, and they looked around them at what all these other gods were offering, and they said, we'll take that, actually. That seems more real. I can touch that. I can see what other people are getting from that right now. I'll take that over the facts that have been told to me. They judged their present and its opportunities and its challenges apart from the living reality of who God had been for them in their history, in their past. Rather than, there's another way to put it. Rather than faithfulness and devotion to the God who had delivered them, they were constantly looking over their shoulder. 
in case a prettier girl might come through the door. Their relationship to God was like speed dating. What have you done for me lately? What can you offer me now? Always with one eye on the next table over and the next possible partner. God constantly having to prove himself to them. Them never able to really rest confident of who he was and what he would be. They couldn't remember. And if we're to have any more chance than they had of living lives now in light of the goodness that God has already shown us and for the promised goodness that's still to come, what we need is a leader who won't let us forget. Who will call us back to the truth about who God is and how greatly He has loved us. And the amazing thing, friends, the amazing thing that next week we'll spend time unpacking is that God has actually responded to Israel and to us to our failure of commitment, to our weakness and coolness and affection, to our constant looking over our shoulder, his shoulder, for a prettier girl to come in. God has responded to our continual failure of him. Not by moving on to someone else, but by giving us exactly what we need. He has responded to our abandonment of him by drawing near to us and by proving to us in Jesus that he will never hold back anything we need. That'll be what we'll unpack together next week. I want to pray for us now that God will give us the strength to believe it. Father, our memories, they are not what we wish that they were. And that's true over the barest of, and, and simplest of facts in our lives. Much more is it true in our relationship to you and who you've been for us. We admit, we confess, we have demanded that you prove yourself to us over and over and over. We, can, we have never lived as if you've done enough. And now we have the audacity, because of Jesus, to ask you again to help us to see who you are in Christ, what you've done for us so that we live in the light of it. Would you now give us the ability to believe, to trust, and to rest in what you've already done? I pray that as we celebrate this time, this season, especially as we look ahead to next week and considering what you've offered us in Jesus, you would help us to understand why we need him so that when we hear of him, we, we, we see the beauty of all that he is. That's an ability that your spirit must give. We pray to you for it right now. In Jesus' name, amen.